Welcome to We'll Figure It Out with Matthew and Aaron. Today we're hosting Elliot Lozano and Alex Salinas. These are two of our longtime friends again. Uh, <laughs> they live in Houston and Elliot and Alex have been kind of involved in the cryptocurrency sphere for a while. They were two of our friends who got into it kind of first. And so we're going to talk to them a bit more, a bit about cryptocurrency to try and learn from them. Elliot is planning on taking a class at Rice revolving around cryptocurrency. So we'll ask him about that and, you know, kind of what he's planning on learning through that. But we're excited to learn more about this magic internet money that <laughs> I kind of don't know a whole lot about right now. Yeah, I'm personally really excited to have uh, Alex and Elliot on as well, just because, uh, like you said, they are longtime friends, and it's nice to be able to like have the friend group start showing up on the podcast in a full force. And uh, right. and yeah, I mean, we've talked about it with the whole group that we'd love to have like more of a mega podcast type of <laughs> brand that they can you know, we can all just like work on together and show more of our lifestyle and what we want to share with the world and be like creative and free and true to ourselves, which is obviously a pipe dream that every friend group has, <laughs> but uh, I'm just excited to have more of them on and like hopefully inspire them to like start to do a little bit more of this type of stuff as well. Cause right now, like we don't have any true like expectation of a huge payday, but like, I'm just excited to be recording these important conversations in these crazy moments in history, like the crazy price swings we're seeing in Bitcoin, like the crazy pandemic of COVID and like just everything we're going through and having that recorded and having that as a piece of our history, no matter who listens to it, I'm really excited about it. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Um, And just on a base level, it's so nice to have just this time for us to like have these conversations with our good friends. So, I mean, just that on that level, it doesn't even matter, you know, the rest of the creative content that comes out of it is, is wonderful and, and exciting, but it's so nice to be able to learn more about our good friends. So excited to, to have them on. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, for any listeners who don't really like come to listen to our podcast for finance necessarily, because we're definitely not claiming to be experts in the field i still think there's going to be a lot of good stuff to come out of uh the talks with these guys um every time i'm talking to them it uh it gets deep and it gets real absolutely so hope you all enjoy <laughs> what was your what was your class after this, Alex? Acting class tonight. Potentially an audition as well. Oh, let's go. What kind of or what is the class like? Classes uh, it varies. Sometimes we'll just do like some improv, but most of the time it's she'll send us a scene, you know, a week prior, and then we have a week to like digest a scene from a movie. We'll do yeah. Glenn Gary Ross or uh, Psycho, you know, stuff like that. Just classic movies. And then you just do your own interpretation of how you think it should be. That's really cool. What, which one are you doing tonight? She actually told us not to look it up, so I don't know. Oh. I follow the rules. Sweet. It's a, it's like some detective. 
Interesting. What what's been your favorite one so far? So far, man. I think so far, uh, I did a. Uh, it was um, Bateman Psycho. I mean, uh, American Psycho. Mm-hmm. It's like despicable character, but it was just really like it was interesting just to get in that mindset of like what what she wanted to have as like the the upper class corporate Wall Street kind of guy, just fucking that job behind the scenes. Was it an amazing character? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a great movie, but was it, was it a little bit, did it mess with your head at all to like put yourself in the mindset of someone psycho? Uh, not actually kind of. Yeah. There was a, uh, we did a couple takes, you know, you'll follow the lines and sometimes you just kind of like, you know, you go off the board depending on your other partner that you're tracking with. And like, I actually like, I, I said something that was like, the character would say like, it was the scene when he was in the cleaners and I was like god damn it why can't you fucking speak English like can't come to this country and not speak English and I was like oh shit wow <laughs> like he would say that but like I, I don't agree with that it's just it's it's a little messy but it's yeah it must be weird to like disconnect from yourself to take on the role yeah you have to have like a little bit of yourself like in the background to like be aware of what's going on but like you just kind of let someone else take the driver's seat a lot of people uh, they struggle with that like Heath Ledger and all tough yeah do you think it is possible to truly disconnect yourself from like the role you're acting it seems like on some level you're gonna be like connected to the role and like people who aren't method actors are they Mm -hmm. still connected to the uh, role? I think it depends. Um, some people, I mean, everyone has a different approach to it. Yeah, there, there's method acting and there's a whole bunch of different teachers like Stanislavski, there's Uta Hagen, and then you've got Strasburg as well, you know, just to name a couple, but like they all have like these different elements of like trying to tell the truth. And that's essentially just like what you want to do. But just to answer your question, like, some people can disconnect themselves really well and like break out of the character and some people just like they're the fucking character and you know you just got to respect their their method one thing that comes to mind is uh what's his name um leonardo dicaprio in django django and change you know how many times he says the n-word in that movie yeah as an actor how do you disassociate yourself from the reality of right. what you're like acting out that's crazy to me. Dude, he actually, like how do the black actors that he's acting with feel about that you know right. Dude, uh, it's funny you say that like he had a tough time at the dinner scene mm-hmm. and um, he was like he like kind of I think he called cut if I'm not mistaken but he told Quentin Tarantino like dude I can't do this anymore like why like, I'm just not comfortable saying the n-word this much mm-hmm. and Samuel L. Jackson just looks at him he's like motherfucker this is just another Tuesday for me like oh fuck <laughs> wow. also by the dinner scene in that movie he had probably already said the n-word like he understood <laughs> it's kind of funny that he stopped at that point that's where he drew the line like oh this movie's almost over but now I feel like yeah I feel like I, I can't keep going <laughs> and what's the class you're starting Elliot uh I haven't really I mean I'm not started yet it starts on june okay in june but um it's going to be purely like a financial technology course at rice university it's an online course so there's not going to be anything on campus but 
it's mostly just covering like traditional finance in the first part and then um, like machine learning. So anything that integrates with machines like APIs and like learning how to code. And then the third leg will be more on like blockchain technology and smart contracts, which is like a very up and coming field, as you know, in uh, the FinTech space. <laughs> That's what you're most excited about? Yeah, I mean, when I, I've been like searching for FinTech programs like all year, but um, when I saw that there was like something dedicated to blockchain and it was from Rice, I was like, this one's hard to beat. You know? yes. So I looked into it more and like everything they're teaching is basically like right up with what I want to learn. So I'm really excited about it. And it's going to be from like um, some Rice University teachers. So, you know, you're getting the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that's really exciting. How long does the course last? It's a six-month course. So it's more like boot camp style. And it's going to be like pretty self-paced. There's going to be like assignments every week. But mm-hmm. most of it is going to be like um, self-paced. And you're going to have an easy... Out of those three legs, at the end of those um, parts of the course, there's going to be like some sort of capstone project. So um, you're working towards that like every single time, like for each part. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I know the last part is um, with, with blockchain, we're actually going to be creating one. So I'll let you guys know how the technical aspect of that goes. That's wow. awesome. For just for. Well, I don't really know what blockchain is, so could you yeah, start explaining that a little bit? Just a general concept. It's just been great, right? Uh, <laughs> blockchain, so yeah, blockchain has been kind of used as like a buzzword, right? Uh, yeah. In cryptocurrency. Yeah. You know, if you ask anyone to explain cryptocurrency, they'll just tell you it's blockchain technology and without any further explanation. <laughs> but, um, Let's see. Uh, this reminds me of like The Office and Michael Scott's like explain this to me like I'm five years old. Yes. And then like I'm three after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You do this to me like I'm three years old. <laughs> yeah. So blockchain, um, the best way I could put it into words right now is um, literally a chain of blocks. Each block is a 10 minute ledger, like financial ledger. Uh, this is like a proof of work mechanism. So what happens is every 10 minutes, Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency that uses blockchain um, compiles together a bunch of transactions that is forever, like, you know, it's permanent and solidified in that blockchain every 10 minutes. So after 10 minutes, whatever transactions have been recorded on the tr- blockchain can like never be got like go back and uh, rescinded basically. So this is like proof of work. It's uh, every 10 minutes you get verifiability that these transactions have taken place. This is like a way to prevent any type of manipulation or double spending. Basically it proves that the transaction took place and everyone who runs a node on the, on the network can see that it took place and verifies that it took place. And these happen basically in 10 minute blocks. So when you line up enough of them, you have a chain of blocks, which is why they call it blockchain. I mean, it's ever expansive, correct? Like there, there won't be an end to any of the of, of the blockings that occurred. You know, right, blockchain is like it goes on forever as long as Bitcoin exists. When they stop mining the last Bitcoin, 
the blockchain will continue because it's it's the financial ledger mm-hmm. that like keeps track of all the transactions even though like we'll i've gotten all the bitcoin out of the mines these digital mines will still use the blockchain to record the transactions that happen with those bitcoin that we mined and it's not just limited to bitcoin right like you, you there's going to be the ethereum blockchain as well it's all encompassing right. like all these different tokens that are coming out i think there's like close to 100 or something like that now yeah you mean like altcoins like yeah, yeah i think there's over a thousand but um yeah there's so many different projects that use blockchain there there are different methods too the first and most popular is definitely proof of work which is bitcoin and Ethereum started out that way, but they're moving to Ethereum 2.0. I think, I mean, they've been saying it for a long time, so no one really knows when. But to, oh, he said a couple of weeks, man. Yeah. I, feel like I heard that a couple he months ago, that, right? too. Yeah, so the joke is that he's been saying it for like years. Take so, care yeah. of Scott. But the point is, like, when they move to Ethereum 2.0, they're going to be moving to this new consensus called proof of stake instead. So it's going to be slightly different from proof of work and proof of stake is more like uh, it rewards people that own a lot of the token on that blockchain and people who have been holding that token for longer period, periods of time. And so like in Bitcoin, every 10 minutes, currently, whoever mines that block is going to get awarded that 6.125 Bitcoin as the block reward. So, where was I going with this? Um, about proof of stake. Oh yeah, so proof of stake, like these these people who are getting rewarded to verify the network aren't just gonna be randomized, like whoever figures out the mathematical problems to, to, to find that block. Like in Ethereum, it's gonna be whoever has the most tokens and then whoever has been holding it the longest time. Mm-hmm. Those are gonna be the people that are like selected to verify the network because they have the most like stake in the network. So there's this like um does it take like energy to uh like any mining power to like have that token and that stake or is that uh a lot easier than Bitcoin? Because like I know it requires like a lot of computing power to mine for Bitcoin. Yeah, um, man, I love this argument. <laughs> I don't know a whole lot about how Ethereum tokens are mined. Uh, I know that there's no like supply cap, which is crazy to me. Well, so like there will no be eventually because if it becomes deflationary with fifteen fifty nine, it will become deflationary because there's there's these things that are associated with the Ethereum called a gas fee, and so with the gas fee. You know, different people will select and they'll, they'll put in the block. And I think you can speak better on the actual blockchain about it, but like uh, they'll submit, you know, here, there's just, you know, let's just say a 50 way or whatever it is for, um, for mining this block, right? And so the way that it gets processed is a different miner will, they will see, you know, with, with 2.0, they will see that the, the most reward for this, for mining the block is going to be 50 or, you know, 100 way, whatever it is. And so they'll get, those tokens, and then with 1559, they'll get burned. So they'll mine some of it, but you start losing more out of it, right? And so eventually over time, what they're hoping is that it becomes deflationary and price will from, increase. From like uh, strategic burns? Yes. Like yeah. they're gonna choose how much to burn? Wow. I don't know how much. And again, like you, you could probably speak better on it than I could, but- Who, so who's making like these decisions? Major, 
difference is which is what i was about to go into the whole point of like why do we do cryptocurrency decentralization is probably the the value proposition for all of this and the more like you have a single leader who makes decentral like de- decisions about the network or you know says something on twitter that everyone rallies behind because he created it so they think it's the right thing to do this become this is a less decentralized version of what it could be right mm-hmm. a true decentralized platform you broke out you, there you, yeah you broke out for a second could you go back to rewind just yeah like a, the last thing you seconds. were saying was that the value proposition of crypto is uh, decentralization right so <clears throat> something like ethereum they have like this supreme leader basically <laughs> in vitalik vitalik buterin buterin yeah wow he uh he has like <laughs> this <laughs> like this amazing influence over the technology um so anything he says kind of goes like i mean ethereum forks like every six months something like that and what's it for so fork and that's opposed to Bitcoin, who has forked once in its entire history. <laughs> a fork is basically like a change in protocol. So developers decide they want Ethereum to be a different type of technology or provide a different type of service. So they write code so that it can do that. But half the other of people who are on Ethereum don't want that to happen. So at that block where that decision is made, there's basically like a side chain and a new blockchain that sprouts. It's like a fork. And now there's two blockchains that you can trace back to an original common block. And that's why it's called a fork because, mm-hmm. you know, two blockchains are now created and they both run their separate protocols because, you know, some people decided to stick with the original protocol. Some people thought that this new one was beneficial for whatever reason. And you see that with Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. If you go back far enough, they will have an original same block that they both shared before they split. Who has the original now, Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash? Bitcoin has, is the original protocol. Um, Bitcoin Cash was a fork that was enabled in, oh man, I don't know what year it was, but that happened because people felt that Bitcoin had a scaling problem, which it kind of does, but I mean, that will be developed in over the time but um they they wanted to make bitcoin more efficient and the way i understand it is that with cryptocurrency you can basically have like decentralization security and efficiency and you kind of have to choose two of those at the expense of the third one so um bitcoin very heavily you know puts importance on uh security and uh, definitely not efficiency. So like <laughs> decentralization, uh, which is like, again, like the value proposition of why we care about this technology. Mm-hmm. The thing is like thousands of years have gone by and really no monetary system has worked perfectly. And it's always, well, it's usually been, uh, the source of that is usually been because like governments have manipulated it to unusable levels. They debase the currency so much that they've become worthless compared to, you know, like other foreign competitors. Mm-hmm. And even like some of the other common issues with just like transportability, like it's hard to carry around, you know, kilograms of gold with you. 
And so the, the, I guess one of the main arguments for why Bitcoin is so it's so revolutionary is just because you can keep it in your phone. You know, it belongs in just a digital wallet at that point. Well, that's one of the things I was going to kind of bring up was that if it is like gold in terms of being a store of value, then I feel like the government in a way is still able to regulate in some sense, right? Like you're not actually using it for transactions. You're not, yeah, I don't know. Like it's not a part of like your regular life, but as people start to get paid in Bitcoin and as people start to like buy houses in Bitcoin and like world markets actually start to depend on it, then there can be like maybe more of a separation. Cause like, I'm still trying to right. figure out like, how does it actually ever become like an unregulated Bitcoin all along across that? Like if it's tied into all of the markets that we currently operate within, it's still being regulated in some sense, right? And they're trying to figure out crypto regulations right now. Yeah, I think we're in like a very interesting period because we're seeing, I mean, Bitcoin's existed for 10 years, but it seems like just now um, we're taking it on at like a massive scale. So, you know, nobody really has answers on how the government can regulate this or whether they do want to regulate it as opposed to like jump on this technology in order to continue being like financial leaders in, within the world. You've seen like the, the, the government pretty much ex- embraced Bitcoin technology for at least since I've been interested in it. I mean, it seems like every week you hear you know, some new person files with the SEC to create a Bitcoin ETF, you know, and companies, public companies that are regulated by the SEC are allowed to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheets. So, and and they're sitting members of Congress who own Bitcoin personally. Yeah. So, I mean, regulation, is it going to happen? Probably. But I mean, most, you have to understand like in a decentralized network like Bitcoin, most of like the real regulation on how Bitcoin behaves is going to be from people running nodes. And that can literally be your grandmother. Uh, it can be some guy that lives in the basement of his mom's house. It can be anyone. As long as they're running the node, they have re- voting rights and they can you know decide which block to accept and which to reject. What does it take to run a node? I'm not really sure. I know it doesn't take much. <laughs> Wild. Like is yeah, everything I've you, heard like about computer. Bitcoin would just be like, I've, it takes just massive amounts of energy. So like it takes a big investment on that end. That's mostly um, a criticism of Bitcoin mining, not running nodes, which is different. But yeah, I mean, there's so many nodes is just that, for transactions. Running nodes are is the mechanism to verify the network uh, and yeah, verify transactions and compile transactions into 10 minute blocks and then show it to the rest of the world network who's running nodes. Makes sense. And everyone agrees that, you know, that block is settled. And so it's just a sub part of that ledger system within blockchain itself that like verifies automatically and says, okay, yeah, this guy sent it to this guy, done, sealed. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the energy argument, yeah, so Bitcoin is not that efficient, right? Um, there's a lot that goes into this because 
first of all, I already explained like what a hard fork is or what a fork is. There's a difference between a hard fork and a soft fork. <laughs> Bitcoin is actually soft fork after it's hard fork. Um, fork. I think in 2017 it had a soft fork and it was it's known as like the SegWit update. And basically this is to tackle um, scaling problems again. Um, is that before what this update to run. This was this is after Bitcoin Cash. So no, before after, so bef- was that before or after uh, the 2017 like spike? Explode that yeah that cycle. Right, I think this was kind of during kind of like where we are now, where everyone knows that. So what does that happen with your happening? shares? Like, not I guess not shares, but like if you own Bitcoin and they have a soft fork or a hard fork occur, like what happens? You also own the tokens. A soft fork means that everyone, who, like, you know, everyone's still on the same protocol. Right, but if everybody like was stuck holding Bitcoin Cash, like isn't that like at a thousand dollars or something right now, or is it like? Right. Like, yeah. So once that you happens, had, a, you literally yeah. just pick. Yeah, you basically have to pick. <laughs> um, but with soft forks, you don't pick. Like the whole the whole network moves forward as one. It's not like they split into two. So that makes so sense it, that in 2017 they were able to do that during the spike. Right. So this SegWit update allowed for like layer two solutions. And this is what you see happening on like Ethereum where it's basically applications that run on top of a blockchain. And Ethereum, you know, hosts hundreds or thousands of decentralized applications that run on top of its blockchain. And so the SegWit update with Bitcoin allowed you to run things like the Lightning Network, which is its most popular layer two solution right now. And that is basically how you send like these massive amounts of transactions instantly across the world for almost no costs. So yeah, uh, that kind of straight away from your a question about actually energy consumption. I feel like Bitcoin does consume a lot of energy, but I mean, if you put yourself in the founder's shoes, which we can go back to, his name is Satoshi Nakamoto. Like you have to figure out a way to distribute these these coins of this new monetary network, right? Um, and you can't just like keep most for yourself. No one's gonna adopt a network when one person holds most of the coins, and you can't email coins to a bunch of your friends. Again, it's the same problem. Uh, there needs to be basically like a cost to acquiring something like a Bitcoin token. Um, and they found that like energy was probably the best way to do this. It kind of makes sense. Like mining gold requires energy. Mm-hmm. So they made it this difficult to do on purpose. Yeah, they made it difficult on purpose um, because the point is that, like, obviously, if anybody could just start exact, printing like, mathematics, everybody behind be... it. But sorry, go ahead. I know. I know that they wanted to kind of like release these coins at a steady rate, not too fast, not too slow, to optimize like its integration into society. That's all I was going to say. So, Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if anybody could uh, instantly mine Bitcoin as well, they would just be doing it and it would be instantly mined, right? And, like, the supply would be up until the next halving. Not really, because like yeah. that's where it differs from gold. Like if you increase the number of miners from ten people to a hundred people, you're gonna mine more gold, right? But if you have ten 
Bitcoin mining warehouses or 100 Bitcoin mining warehouses, you're still only going to receive 6.125 Bitcoin per 10 10 minute period. So no amount of like increase in mining will increase the amount of Bitcoin mined, if that makes sense. Yeah, they did it strategically so that it halves every four years until the last one is mined, like 2140. And uh, I think even Cameron said that that last Bitcoin ever, like even after all those halvings in 100 years, is going to take 40 years to mine. Uh, just because, you know, as it, it, it's like a logarithmic curve, as it approaches zero, um, it takes longer and longer. Which is interesting and ties directly like into the energy argument. Because, like, you have to also think about the trade-offs of what you're getting for the cost of energy it's taking up. Like, if this is truly a new monetary network that the world, whole world is going to take on and nations are going to use um, instead of gold, you know, to store value, then this is something that you want to spend energy doing, right? No, no one, like, talks about the energy costs of Christmas lights every year or, like, <laughs> gaming consoles or like anything else that takes energy. Like in my opinion, there's a ton of things that take energy that aren't as important as Bitcoin. So if you want to kind of solve this energy consumption problem, maybe we should look at things that really don't need to happen that are consuming energy. Well, right. Instead of, you know. Like if the way we were getting the energy was sustainably, instead of using like coal power, fossil fuels it would be most of bitcoin is mined through hydroelectric power really i was which is, reading the opposite yeah. the other day but yeah. really i, I mean you might i, I mean I you read know it more, once as well so you know more on the topic than i do i was just basically reading that like capitalism is like winning out basically in, in bitcoin because people are just choosing the cheapest way to get it and fossil fuels are like the most used especially in asia maybe it was right. like an asia specific article but I'm not sure. When I read that, I was like, oh, that's unfortunate. But I read about a lot that are doing sustainable methods, which, like, that's great. And hopefully, like, the world kind of just trends that way in general. And so yeah. this whole argument of, like, adding value to something by requiring energy to produce it wouldn't seem so, like, you know, twisted, I guess, just because, like, you're requiring something that's, like, we're currently combating as a species right and i feel like at the end of the day if we bring on and and accept the the bitcoin network as you know our our monetary the world's monetary network we're going to solve a lot of problems including a bunch of energy problems yeah we're going to get rid of a bunch of things that you know, are crazy consumers of energy. And like Alex said, it's going to be 2140 when the last one is mined. So mining is a very temporary thing. I mean, it's a hundred years still, but it doesn't go on forever. Uh, in fact, I think like 88% of all Bitcoin have already been mined. So right. we won't even have to deal with or be worried about the whole Bitcoin mining problem in the future. Also what you were saying, sorry, one more last thing is that, um, they are trying to find like ways to be kind of sustainable about this. I know like people who pr- produce energy, like gas companies, oil companies, they can only produce like a certain amount of or use a certain amount of energy 
um, to do this. And so they have like spillover energy, I think is what it's called. Okay. And a lot of Bitcoin mining like startups have actually gone on board with these companies that have spillover and are using that excess energy to power their mining rigs, which is really nice because otherwise that energy would have just been wasted. Right. I'm also just curious to know what are, because like basically one of, your, one of the parts of your arguments there, not the only part, but one of the parts was that basically like the benefits that are going to come from Bitcoin in terms of solving problems of sustainability justifies how much we need to like put up to mine it in the first place basically how much energy we need to use to mine it in the first place the ends justify the means type of thing and like Mm. i mean like will it be a better monetary network will it be make it more equitable for everybody right like these are important questions because if it is then then absolutely taking on Bitcoin is the right thing to do, even though it consumes energy. Yeah, you'll see the most benefit in a lot of struggling countries like Peru, uh, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, places where, you know, 99% of the money actually just lives at the top, right? And everyone else, the actual common people just see, you know, little bits and pieces of it. Kind of like the U.S.? A little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. I think we'll start to see a little bit more balancing of... of how we operate as a financial society. Yeah. Uh, we'll actually get rewarded for the work that we do and the value that we place our worth on instead of just someone else telling us like, yeah, this is what you're worth. I mean, that's true for any free market, right? A total free market. And that is the point and is what you have with Bitcoin. It's, it's completely decentralized and that's what makes it a, a completely free market. The other day, I mean, we've all been in Bitcoin for you know, at least a week, but for a little bit longer than that, some of us, uh, and we saw, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, the price just get hammered from like 60,000 to 51, like it wicked down to 51 within a matter of an hour, an hour or something like that. Right. And I think it was something like $10 billion worth of Bitcoin had was forced liquidated during that time. Mm-hmm. And these are, this is because people were like using leveraged, positions to trade Bitcoin as opposed to just buying and holding. Yeah. And so when it dropped in value, they were, they were forced liquidated. Yeah. yeah. And since then there's been like no bailouts. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's nothing that like where a government steps in and basically gives money back to someone who misbehaved or made the wrong decision and ended up losing money. So like in that sense, is it more equitable? Yes, it is because uh, there's no one manipulating the money, no one getting to choose who they give loans out to. You know, everyone is able to buy Bitcoin and hold it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like the sound of that system. My only concern just is like we list some countries that are like high percentage of like really bad poverty where people like right now don't even have access to the Internet. My concern would just be a little bit of a disparity that would just be increased by those who do have access where like, I don't know the exact numbers Um, in Bolivia. I think it's like 60 something percent of the people are indigenous, but obviously not all of those don't have access to the Internet. They uh, but it's a high percentage. I mean, right. Like the the community I lived in and and, um, a lot of places that you see like they just don't have access to the internet and how do you really use Bitcoin and how does that help you? 
But regardless, that's not like the job of the currency to necessarily fix. It's the job to like right. get it's everybody access out. to right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you're right to a certain extent. Like, if it hasn't that network hasn't been built out and developed the infrastructure of it, where everyone has access to inf- internet, so people like us are getting access to Bitcoin at a much better price than people in Africa when that network will eventually be built out. But it's interesting to know, like, I think Nigeria is like one of the most active Bitcoin communities in terms of countries in the world. And there's, and it's like Alex was saying, it's a lot of struggling countries that have taken this on most emphatically, which makes sense because, you know, we complain in the U.S. that our U.S. dollar is debasing at like 5% a year, which is a number given by the Fed, <laughs> the Fed, by the way. Not even like, you know, it could be much greater than that. If you ask Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, right. he, he'll, he'll say 15% year over year inflation. So countries like Argentina, I think they have like 40% inflation a year. That's a number that is released by their government. That's an official inflation rate. So it makes sense for them to want to either put their money into the US dollar that deflates less or into something like Bitcoin that is deflationary. Sorry, infl- I was, when I said the US dollar, I meant inflate. Yeah, but yeah. Bitcoin is defl- deflationary. So I basically, see what you're saying. So you, yeah, like you countries can hold your money in a safer, money. more secure right. place. In theory, yeah. I mean, right now it's the most volatile place you could possibly keep it besides Dogecoin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But I mean, it's well, just. Besides Dogecoin and longer. Apparently, lumber really lumber. It's just a running joke. This, like, if you look at the um, the return or like the value of lumber compared to other commodities, it just has skyrocketed over the past year compared to like oil and gold and silver and other commodities. Yeah, it's just it's I mean, people are just using wood for everything now, and like wood can build stronger houses, and it can build skyscrapers now too. Um, they're uh, oh, that was hemp. Hemp was no, not for real. Like there was a, I know Ellie and I have talked about it that they actually, you know, back in like nineteen twenty or something, they were talking about using hemp as the the product and material to you know construct cars and everything because it was like super super dense. Yeah, I mean it's a laminate wood of some sort, so it's not like any true wood. Um, so it could mm-hmm. include hemp in it, honestly, for all I know. But yeah, it's kind of cool and. It's nice to see that it also, like, I think laminated wood does a much better job of actually using the wood than, like, true cut wood. Obviously, like, waste a ton of the tree. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Who needs those anyway, right? It's not like we need them. Right. (laughs) But, yeah, also, Elliot, I was going to ask you if from the rice program are you hoping to use that to maybe start looking for any like jobs or a more formal career in crypto yeah absolutely (laughs) let's go that's super Uh, i mean there's not that many jobs in the space right now and i feel like the people they're hiring have like years of experience at at traditional financial institutions but I mean, my plan is to like hit the ground running as fast as I can once this program is over. So 
I'm definitely going to be like looking out for internships or like even mentorships. I don't know. I'll literally go and be like, don't pay me. Let me work. And yeah, dude, I've heard it's like paying me once you think I can be paid or I contribute value. I mean, they're hiring like crazy right now is what I've heard. And I think that they're not necessarily a field that like looks for traditional investors or traditional background either. Yeah. When I was talking to the um, people at Rice, they, I mean, I told them what my background was and why I was interested in the space and they thought the program was a great fit for me. There was going to be a lot of people with no previous experience taking this course and they even have like career advisors after this course is done to help you kind of like get started in fintech. But I mean, a good thing about crypto, cryptocurrency and the whole space is that there is really nobody in this world that has more than 10 years of experience, right? Because that's when the first one was created. So I'm not at a massive disadvantage. I'll actually be like one of the trailblazers if I end up going into this field at all. So I thought, I think that's super interesting, at least. That's awesome, man. I mean, that sounds super exciting. Hopefully... That'll work out for you. We'll be we'll be rooting for you on the on the sidelines. <laughs> uh, you should definitely also talk to Santi about this as well, because he was telling me about a couple friends of his that like were not in finance that he just like was friends with that uh, switched from like a completely unrelated field into it, and so they applied to like three jobs and got uh, all three. Oh, really? Yeah, literally, literally said that like just wrote up an explanation of how they got into crypto and what they thought about the future of crypto and got interviews and it worked out at all of them. Oh wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, and uh, I'm gonna try that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like he just like cold called people or just not. not yeah, just cold, cold email everyone. Email, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah. yeah, it's super sick, and I think like yeah, all the boys are super lit about it because like. I feel like not only like on the last podcast we were talking to Thomas and he was saying how like he's just seen G be like so like true to himself and like pleased with like what he's pursuing lately. I would definitely say the same thing about you with like crypto. Like I feel like you've just like really like blossomed into it and like starting the money moves group. It's just been sick. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were the trailblazer that got everyone in, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. I mean, I just want uh, I just want my homies to be rich. <laughs> no, that, that money moves group is great. I love how we Do you want to explain like, what the money moves group is for anybody listening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have a friend group that has been together since high school and we have like a ridiculous amount of group messages for different <laughs> subjects. We got one for just our everyday talking. We got one for sports. We found one dedicated to golf besides our <laughs> yes. sports ones. Uh, we had yeah. a Game of Thrones one at one point. There we go. And we also have one most recently uh, that we started called Money Moves. And it's just to talk about anything, either crypto or just finance in general. I feel like it's just kind of relevant to us based on our like age. The fact that we're all kind of working now and making money. I just wanted like a place for all of us to kind of like share ideas and post different like news and information that would just help us be successful and build wealth for the long term. Yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed being in there and there's uh, always some great memes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what ties the group together. Yeah, no shortage of Dogecoin memes. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, if I become wealthy on crypto, I will have that group message to thank. I feel like that and, <laughs> and, and Carl Shiro basically, because yeah, <laughs> big boy Carl, dude. He yeah, shout out Carl Shiro, man. Yeah, the OG uh, like crypto salesman in my life for sure. Right. Um, That's funny that you said that because I remember when we went up to Tristan's lake house for labor. Was it Labor Day? Yeah, I think it was Labor. Yeah. We, we mentioned Carl about him talk like telling, I think he told you Matt like this is the last time or the best time to buy Bitcoin or the last time you'll be able to buy it at this price forever. yeah 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 and I remember <laughs> laughing at that because I had remember him saying that before he so says it like, so know. often and as I like researched more I was like holy shit or, sorry <laughs> like this guy is like kind of right the longer you wait, the worse off you are. So like now is the best time to get in. And I mean, if you're scared at buying at 60 K, um, or today's price, $55,000, then you don't want to hold it long-term or you don't understand Bitcoin. But it's funny that, you know, we all find our ways to get introduced to it. I remember the first time I ever heard of Bitcoin was in high school in 2014. I was trying to buy a fake ID and uh, <laughs> this guy who I was buying it from accepted cash or Bitcoin. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what the heck Bitcoin is. I'm just going to pay this guy cash. But Can you imagine if you started your wallet back then? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And then I feel like the whole world kind of heard about it again in 2017 when it was all over the news when it popped to 20K from like under $1,000. So, I mean, we, we've missed opportunities, but the opportunity is still ahead of us. Like it's an S curve. And the fact is, is you get in at the beginning of the S curve, your returns are going to be massively bigger than if you get in at the middle or at the end of the S curve. So buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also like you were saying, the, like if you're trying to buy if you're afraid to buy Bitcoin right now and you're just a short-term investor or like you don't really understand like the ultimate price that like Bitcoin can get to and like what the goal is here, what kind of like, do you just want to talk a little bit about valuations like both of you guys, like how you kind of look at Ethereum and Bitcoin and maybe any of the altcoins you're interested in and like how you're confident in those values? Because for me, that's what- Have you guys heard of- uh, the stock to flow model <laughs> plan B. Yes. No. Can you yeah. explain that? <laughs> Do you want to? Uh, no, you go ahead. You know more about stock to flow. I mean, it's, it's a model that, right. So all models are wrong. Some are useful, right? Um, but this model was created by, um, an anonymous user. He goes by plan B plan B. Yeah. <laughs> on Twitter. You should give him a follow if, if, if you're on Twitter because he has phenomenal charts and on-chain analysis that I follow a lot and actually use a lot uh, when determining when I should buy Bitcoin. But anyway, um, the stock-to-flow model is very simple. It's basically just a ratio of the current stock, which is every, all the Bitcoin that's currently available in circulation, divided by the flow, which is how much Bitcoin is being mined currently. And if you think about Bitcoin decreasing the amount of 
or like having the amount of the Bitcoin that will be mined every four years, that ratio grows to be a bigger and bigger number because the denominator gets smaller and smaller, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Over time, right? Over time. So theoretically, the stock to flow model goes to infinity. And if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, you'll be like, hell yeah, Bitcoin's (laughs) going to fucking a million dollars or $10 million. But it was created a couple of years ago or the previous, uh, after the uh, last cycle. Um, But you kind of like extrapolate backwards and you see that it has almost perfectly predicted the price for 10 years straight. So it's just like something super interesting. It has Bitcoin valuation going to about like $188,000 this cycle. Which ends when? It's 504 days after the May halving uh, from last year. So it should land around late September or early October. Uh, but that date is tentative. You know, it's, you can't really depend on an X number of days. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe you can't. I don't know. So it's, 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 if you look at the past few cycles, the days have varied a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's around that, that time period. The halvings happen in May. And the following year is when you see the run up in price. So the halving happened in May 2020. And the run up in price started happening as early as October, maybe. And so we're probably about halfway through the bull market of this cycle, assuming that it behaves according to previous cycles, which, as I mentioned the other day, is a very small sample size. So you can't really guarantee anything. But I mean, the stock to flow model has proven correct or very close to correct for a long time. So it could be going to the moon. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, theoretically, it's... uh what the the algorithm that really generates the, the price prediction is determined by Metcalf's law, um, which simply stated is just like it's the uh, it's an exponential return on the amount of users, right? So that's where you get the value from. So let's say everyone's using it. I mean, you're it's uh, eight ten billion times, you know, infinity. <laughs> Simpsons already said it. I mean, that's the network effect as well. You have more users. It's going to be a more secure network. There's going to be more actual money inside the network. There's going to be more liquidity. When this is a trillion dollar asset, it already is a trillion dollar asset. When it's a $10 trillion asset, it's going to be basically the same liquidity as, well, it's going to be the same market cap as gold with even better liquidity. It's just better gold, basically. Um, And it's digital. Um, It's infinitely divisible. Um, But you're right. As more people come on, there'll be more money. Um, that will attract bigger and bigger people, players, like institutions and then cities. Miami's already taking it on in their treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, it's going to be small nation states, small countries, and then big countries. Yeah, you really pick up the attitude with, you know, either you adopt it or you get left behind. Yeah, and I mean, who knows what the timeline for this type of thing is, but this is like what the effect is. You know, the bigger it gets the faster and stronger it gets. So just to answer your question from earlier, Matt, about um, just, you know, various tokens, Ethereum, Aave, and all that. Bitcoin is obviously, that's the king. That's the giant, right? Uh, But really, and I think Ellie and I have talked about this before, is that most of the enthusiasm and excitement really lies in the DeFi network uh, with Ethereum. 
just because it plays such a huge role in our daily lives in, in that centralized finance. I mean, um, you want to maybe say what DeFi is? Yeah, DeFi is uh, decentralized finance. So that's really taking out banks out of all of this. Um, so there's no middleman between you and your money. And just to kind of back up what DeFi is with Ethereum is it it's smart applications, decentralized application and uh, smart contracts. So you just plug in a certain you know code and you just say, and you put an if then statement with it so that it just verifies itself and it keeps on running, right? And so basically what it does is eliminate counterparty risk um, because the contract that you're agreeing to is in an, is an algorithm. Mm-hmm. So if certain inputs are met, it's going to produce the output that was agreed upon when you signed the contract or entered the contract. Um, in real life, that doesn't always happen, right? Yeah, like taking loans out, you know, they check a bunch of stuff that's completely unnecessary, credit score history and all that. Um, they don't really check, like, do you have the amount of money that you need? Yes, okay, perfect. And that's how a, a decentralized smart contract would work. A lot of people do get, uh, they get the short end of the stick just because they, uh, you know, they, they have certain things that are counted against them. And then how does would, that, how is that protected, I guess? Like the whole banking I mean, system, financial system is like meant to like secure all of our funds. It's meant to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's not really serving its job. Because this is different. Uh, than, about, this like, is different than blockchain, right? These, these are two different. I mean, de- decentralized finance runs on blockchain technology. So mm-hmm. you have the- Ethereum, which I would consider also the king for, in a different space. Bitcoin and Ethereum have completely different use cases, in my opinion. One's a store of value. The other one, that's Bitcoin. The other one is. Uh, it's a decentralized computing platform that like other applications and tokens can build on top of. Um, what I mean by that is that Ethereum provides the blockchain, the protocol, and then other tokens like LinkChain, um, Aave, mm-hmm. all these other altcoins uh, run their projects on top or connected to the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so it's like a whole network. Like yeah. the internet for crypto, yeah. So you still kind wouldn't of, yeah. spend. You still wouldn't spend any Ethereum either. You would. That would also be a store of value to own Ethereum, right? Right. You use and then Ethereum you would use those to, other altcoins. Yeah, Ethereum is basically used to pay gas fees when you're sending transactions. <clears throat> and uh, gas fees, just to put a little bit more depth on it, is just. The, the process for how you get paid with the blocks, right? For the miners. Right. So there's a huge like amount of volume or congestion, which Ethereum is very congested. The fees are going to be very high because the people running these nodes or, or the people clearing these transactions can charge high fees when there's a lot of congestion. Mm-hmm. There's high demand. So like I said, Ethereum forks all the time. Uh, they change their protocol all the time. They're always creating new projects and no, new Ethereum tokens with different names um, that try to solve con- like problems that constantly arise as this technology is getting developed. Ethereum 2.0 is trying to like kind of declog the congestion by running things called shards. 
um, which are basically a bunch of like side blockchains that run parallel that aren't the main chain. A bunch of transactions happen off the main chain on these parallel chains, um, get compiled into fewer transactions that are larger, and then are then put onto the main Ethereum chain to be settled on that ledger, since that's like the long, long running accepted Bitcoin ledger or Ethereum. Ethereum ledger. But like, what do you mean? Like, how how is this protected? Uh, well, I guess my biggest concern. It's not even a concern. Yeah, I mean, I guess how hackable, and that's like the question everybody has, right? Like, how yeah. how seriously can this guarantee that nobody's ever gonna like get to it? And then like once they do, what's the recourse? Like, there's nobody protecting you, right? Or uh, so that that like is on, true on Coinbase. I guess it's like FDIC insured, right? Like you get paid back mm-hmm. if like that got hacked. Yes, but not yeah. To answer your question though, it theoretically, you know, in in an infinite universe of possibilities, it, it definitely it could be true that there is no one there to actually protect you against that. But it's virtually impossible just because you have to hack every single block before it. And so because it's a you know ever growing algorithm of blocks, it that start to, to move in infinite different ways on the chain. Right. And you I guess I also, like, like, answered my own question, though. Like, there's just going to be a system in place, I think, as well. Right? Like, what's the system? I think it'll, it'll start to be self-governed. Yeah. Just Launching is the security mechanism. Yeah. Because after 10 minutes, after a block has been settled and there's a new block in play, the previous blocks can never be changed again. So if there's something that happens during this current 10-minute block... Um, the block will probably be rejected and a new block will be like established because there's constantly like miners all over the world trying to find or discover this new the next block right because they get paid 6.2 or 6 point whatever bitcoin every 10 minutes for finding that block um but if if there's ever like an attack or like someone's trying to steal bitcoin or they're trying to post false transactions um it's going to look different to everybody else who's running a node on the network and they will just immediately reject that block so i don't know how to like explain it like very technically but i I know like the security aspect of it is basically that everyone running a node verifies that the next block is the right block because they can all see and match the same information with each other and if there's something that seems off or is not right, they will just not run that next block. They will, you know, they'll select somebody else's. Right. Okay. But it's, it's a little complicated. I didn't explain it like very, like perfectly, but I like blockchain itself is the technology, is the security measure. Yeah, right. Makes sense, so. And I, I think the base of operation for its security is also in trust that everyone who's in the community wants it to run perfectly you know no one's actually going to self-sabotage and fuck someone else over just because i mean everyone in the community is is certifying those blocks right so you'd have to like turn the tides and right and not one person can do it you would have to take control of 51 percent of all nodes mm-hmm. which is a lot. massively difficult right and there's like great podcasts and like articles about this very topic i recommend the investors podcast hosted by Preston Pish. 
he is also a great follow on Twitter, but he has a weekly Bitcoin podcast where he invites people on and they're all experts within the field. And one of the episodes talks about basically 51% attacks and hacking the network and security measures. And it's a great listen. So go and listen to that if you want to learn more. Okay. Or we could, you know, have you in all of it. Uh, record yourselves talking more to educate the boys and help us get rich. Elliot by far is the most knowledgeable on this. I'm like a... I've only been in the space for, you know, a few months now. I'm like a toddler in the grand scheme of things with all of this. Right. And when did you start uh, researching it and stuff, Elliot? Okay, so... After Tristan's Lake House, when we all joked about Bitcoin, um, I remember kind of following its price action that weekend and saw how volatile it was. And then I, I was very, you know, I was just like immediately interested in it. And at the time, I was very interested in regular stock investing. Some of our other guy friends, Aaron Elder and Rick A, we had like a group chat together we would just talk about stocks all the time and so i was just following bitcoin on the side so it was probably around like the end of september or beginning of october when i started finding out about the cyclical nature about this kind of like the value proposition who more or less you know like this was geared for like geared basically what good we could get out of bitcoin and the price just kept climbing, so I was yeah. And I guess once you like to get in, once you hear that realization, exactly like you get super eager to get in, right? Like it's just like <laughs> right. you know, it's like okay, so this is just a cyclical thing that like every time. I think the day I bought Bitcoin, up. I zoomed out on the charts, the chart, and just saw how insanely cyclical and like um, pre- predictive it was based on everyone saying it was going to do a certain movement and that it did or you know for the past 10 years and also learned about the stock to flow model and i was just like if this stock to flow model is right and this cycle is going to pop like it did last time the price is currently fifteen thousand dollars this is the best price to buy it at Right. And that's when I thought about Carl Shiro <laughs> yeah. and him saying that this is the best price you will never be able to buy at this price again. And I just sent it. Yeah. That's and then awesome. the next like three weeks to month, I was badgering all my friends about Bitcoin. Yeah. You, you got me uh, New Year's, like New Year's Eve's Eve, like one of the few days right before the new year. Uh, we sat down at Thomas's house and we were just talking about it downloaded the coinbase app looked at it with elliot he was like bro i'm telling you like <laughs> this thing is the future i remember elder in the background just yelling if i hear one more thing about bitcoin i swear to god <laughs> <laughs> and this was like when it was under 20k yeah yeah that's crazy <laughs> yeah so the um, prediction for this next cycle is that we're sitting around recently the price has been sitting around the 49 to 65k range or like 47 i guess it dropped down to 47 for a while so 47 to 65k range and what yeah. is the like predicted end of the cycle range well the stock to flow has it you know just under 200k personally you know i am an ardent optimist i think we could see like a 5x you know maybe 
250 or so because I think there's a lot of other factors that need to be considered um, especially institutional adoption you know large or small nation state adoption as well uh, a lot of that will have a tremendous influence on the price you know when you actually do start to see the peak of it and it does become harder to get right so you, there's the the like hard money valuation of Bitcoin is going to predict that it moves up to 180k or whatever the number you said earlier is but there's all these yeah. other societal valuations that we can't truly predict that you think are being undervalued. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's Alex. If you ask me, <laughs> I'm the opposite. I think the stock to flow model is crazy. And as much as like I follow it and respect plan B, I think we'll be lucky. I mean, just because I've, I started like learning about finance in traditional finance and nothing moves like Bitcoin does. So when you tell me that I'm gonna buy something for under 20K and it's gonna go to $180,000 within a year or within a year and a half, like that just doesn't make sense to me. But I mean, we all know that crypto behaves differently, right? So who knows what can happen? Um, I personally think it's definitely hitting 100 and it's going beyond that. But I mean, I would be hard pressed to say it's gonna outperform the stock to flow, so. So yeah, also, can I ask you? Go ahead. I was just going to ask a question Actually, if there's been. Okay. Oh, really quick, just because it's about the stock to flow and the three cycles, mm-hmm. uh, just to how you have it time a little bit better into the podcast. The stock to flow is been right on all the cycles, and this next cycle is 180 something thousand. And mm-hmm. you were saying that the sample size is small, though. It's only three cycles. And. Yeah, we're on the third cycle, actually. Right. And so, how many cycles are there total? Is it like 30 total cycles? I mean, every four years until 2140. Uh, so, like, at least 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man, there's going to be, like, a lot of cycles. Yeah, but the thing I think is important is that the cyclical nature could very well just be... Bitcoin in its early development stage, you know, as you have more institutional investors come on and you shake out retail investors or um, you don't shake them out, but you just add on institutional and nation states like this, the price is not going to become as volatile. Cycles aren't going to happen as much or at all. And it'll become boring at that point. (laughs) Yeah. So the point is for Bitcoin to become the least volatile and most boring asset in the world eventually Um, because if you have all this money pouring in like MicroStrategy and Tesla and I know Facebook and Apple released earnings today I don't know if they declared Bitcoin I hope they did but um, (laughs) if if you have all this money coming on board there's not going to be a whole lot of selling once it hits its top because institutional investors aren't like retail investors they don't they don't get spooked very easily and if they buy something, they usually have a lot of conviction in it. That's um, what made me start buying was when I saw that happen a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's important to to factor in as well. So when you hear people like, oh, it's too late this cycle to buy. I'm just going to wait till it crashes by 80% like it has in previous cycles. I don't think that is going to happen. I think that's like a mischaracterization of the development that Bitcoin has experienced over the past year alone. Right. What was your question going to be, uh, Aaron? Yeah, so I was going to ask, I mean, I remember 
during the initial like blow up, people were comparing it to the tulip bubble. But I was going to ask if there was any resource that it behaves even remotely similar to, or that you can like form an analogy to have like a better understanding of what's going on, since the crypto is such like a, a feels almost imaginary I instead know. of like <laughs> a, a something more material. Is, I like don't think there gold, is anything right? like it. Which yeah, is so why, there's nothing to compare it to. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's what other invention is perfectly sound money in the financial space. And I mean, I'm, I sound like kind of culty right now, but I, and, but like the valid question, you know, with everything else has its guaranteed flaws in there. I don't think we really see that in the crypto space aside from volatility, but I mean, that goes without saying. This is like, you have to understand like Bitcoin is absolute scarcity. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin mined ever. A large major, a large portion of that has already been lost, which is a good thing. It's like 3 million already. Yeah, lost. so like the total circulating supply is gonna be around like $18, I mean, 18 million Bitcoin. <laughs> so when you have like absolute scarcity, something. 18 million out of 21 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. So even less. Right. Um, so when you have absolute scarcity, there's only one thing that matters, and that's how much money is coming in because the supplies, you know, there's it's supply and demand. And if the supply stays constant forever, any new amount of money that you add is going to raise the price. So... It's Bitcoin super interesting because a lot of assets and traditional commodities and securities like you were asking about really kind of depend on like demand side economics. And Bitcoin is basically supply side economics where you have a constant value and all you care about is how much, I guess, how much demand is there is, how much, how much people are putting money into the system. And as more money comes in, the price goes up and it becomes more secure and more usable by bigger money. Um, it's kind of like a, a positive feedback loop. Yeah. Does the stock to flow model predict a crash after the 188? Uh, no, the stock to flow model, if you actually look at it, uh, is it it's horizontal, right? Yeah, it's like a straight line for four years. That's why it's just like a model. Uh, it right. basically says the price stays flat for four years until the next halving, then it goes up and then stays flat for four years again. It's so just like a stair step. Right, it's, it looks like a staircase. Literally. And the last time it predicted that it went all the way down or did it have a stair step for the last one as well? It was, yeah, yeah, it was so, flat. Yeah, so if you look at the last cycle, the price action goes above the step you know the stock to flow price and then crashed down back to the price went a little below it but kind of hovered around the flat area until it got to the next halving and then it goes way past again past the next step overshoots so you we we could be seeing like the 250 prices that alex is talking about and have it drop back down to the 188 if it's like Wow. Past 188, yeah. Well, I mean, even it would be even more. It'd be like 500,000 if it was going to replicate the last cycle because that was like 20,000 that dropped all the way down to like a couple thousand, right? Right. And it went up to, I think it's all time high last cycle was around 20K, 19,900 yeah. 19, something. 
and it dropped to as low as like three thousand dollars. Yeah, three and a half, I think. If I'm not mistaken, it might have been lower than that. But I know, like last year or a year and a month ago, you could have bought Bitcoin for that same price. Yeah, right around COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's just crazy how volatile and how much it moves. The stock of flow is just a model. It predicts like basically the average price, I guess, over that four-year cycle. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's done pretty well. But just to piggyback off of Matt's comment about half a million, uh, there's two big things to keep in mind with that number. The first is that $500,000 Bitcoin would mean that it would equal gold's market cap of 10 trillion. So which is, I mean, it's a huge undertaking in less than a year. It's not impossible. I mean, everyone would have to start feeding a lot of money, you know, or at least everyone would have to be public about it and say that they are they're they are incorporating Bitcoin on their balance sheets around the world. Well, it but just the, felt the like such a bubble thing, last time. Yes, and that I think that goes back to Elliot's point that it was so new. Yeah, time. we're seeing so much volatility with it early on, but I think as more people get in and they stay in, we're going to start to shake off a lot of that volatility. It's going to start to become right. uh, like a logarithmic curve, and it'll start to flatten and smooth out. Yeah, and I think, or at least for my understanding, so when these large institutions see the price spike up to 188 and maybe fall like to 160, 150, whatever, they're not going to sell all their Bitcoin, which is going to stabilize. They're going to keep buying. It's just going to keep the line more flat. The the more iterations we do and the more money that's involved in the system. Is that what kind of what you were saying? Yeah. 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 Um, So again, like stock to flow, it could happen. It could way overshoot and it could way crash below. But Mm -hmm. I, I'm not in the camp that believes that's going to (laughs) happen. I think it gets more and more stable over time and less, you know, less volatile. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I agree. I I think 500,000, at least in this cycle, I mean, that's like, that's a miracle, bro. Uh, It's, I mean, it's statistically near zero that it would happen, but I mean, that would literally just mean that it would just be an explosive part of Bitcoin's total history, right? This is when a lot of people in in 2021 started getting into it. Uh, So it is possible, but that would just mean that there's more volatility, volatility. you know, we wouldn't see a a reduced price. um, To what Elliot would be talking about near that, that flatter of the staircase. Also, yeah. well, like, I was trying to point if out if it goes that to five hundred thousand dollars, if it goes five hundred thousand dollars this cycle, then I change my mind. It's going to drop a hell of exactly. a lot. Exactly, that's, that's what I was thinking. Because, if it gets to five hundred, people are going to sell like hotcakes. Well, that's right. what I was yeah. saying. You me that the price went from three thousand dollars to five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> within a year and a half, and people aren't going to look at that as a bubble and sell the heck out of the top. Yeah, absolutely. Total, total bubble. Yeah. We're hoping that it doesn't happen like that because really this is a long-term play. Right. My, uh, yeah, actually my the longer it stays up. Sorry, go ahead. Nothing. Just the longer it stays down, the more we're able to accumulate. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're stacking those Satoshis, man. Right. Um, what were you going to say? Uh, man, I don't even remember now. I was gonna say <laughs> it was so important. That's all right. I mean, just do your thing, and it'll come back to you. <laughs> yeah, actually, do you mind if I go pee for a sec? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, we can we can start to wrap up. 
Okay. You know, it's um, nice to bounce soon anyway. Yeah. Let me just think if there's anything else. I mean, we never we didn't really talk about who created Bitcoin. What was the uh, last thing we were just talking about though? I don't remember what I was. We were was talking saying. about um, the volatility and whether it would go to five hundred thousand. Oh, that's what I was gonna say. That the only thing that I meant in bringing up the five hundred thousand dollars was just comparing how even though the like average price of the stock to flow model might like work itself out, its actual predictability of like prices is like so difficult to like pinpoint in any way because like right. It was yeah. just one of the most outrageous swings ever in 2017. I mean, it went from like under a thousand to twenty thousand, dude. I mean, that's literally just as absurd as going from three thousand to five. That, that's Dogecoin this year, literally. <laughs> it's right, right. That's another thing we didn't even talk about. Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how much of this valuation. Like, there's so many cycles left. Like, how do you not? have to have the worry that like some of this was a major bubble but i don't know because it's I mean, just everybody's just pumping their excess funds that they haven't been spending in covid into this stuff and now spending's about to go just like through the roof like because now covid's in right yeah i don't know man i mean i i think this is something that like people are are learning more about every day and my grandmother brought up Bitcoin to me the other day. So like this is hitting all corners of society, right? The more the more people look into it, the more they see the potential for it. And if you understand the potential, then you don't want to miss out on what could perhaps be the most important or greatest invention of our lifetimes. So this isn't something like that would revolutionize an industry. This is something that could revolutionize something for the entire world. You and know, and even uh, the for solar humanity. system too. Right, exactly. If I think it could become multiplanetary, you know, if Elon Musk does go to Mars. Uh, you know, it could be the financial system that they use over there in the future. I mean, yeah, I think. The more people that are getting onto this network, like we said earlier, the more verified it gets, the more credibility it has, and the more big money will go into it. So at that point, the price isn't a bubble. I mean, we're just at the early stages if that's if that's the case. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we all just have to sit back and see like everyone else. We're certainly not experts in the field, but I mean, just based on like, Everything I've read, it seems like there's a lot of very smart people who are very interested and have a lot of conviction in this technology. And they've spent a lot of money. I'm optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they put—I mean—they have stake in it. Yeah, they've—they've they've put billions of dollars of their own publicly traded companies into this. So. And it's also interesting that the people that are seeming to be interested in crypto, at least originally were more progressive obviously and i think do have a view for a better future uh as a result of this like this isn't just like a money play you know what i mean like people yeah, are, like a get rich quick scheme yeah i mean no, now, this is now it's play. now it, no i mean not i think now there's a lot of people getting into it because of the volatility and because they've realized you can make money but there's a lot of people right. that at the beginning of bitcoin like really believed in technology as it's like a step towards a better future for mankind itself 
Right. They want, I mean, people who like realize that they're getting paid in fiat currency, they're getting paid in dollars. And if they hold those dollars in their bank account, the same product they can buy today, they might not be able to buy next year, even with the same amount of dollars that they're, they're holding in their bank account. And that's just like inflation, right? Um, inflation is just printing too much money. Or you can think of it as things that you like to buy, things around you get more expensive. Why? Not because they get better, but because the cost of the materials to create that, that product have gotten more expensive. And also, your income generally doesn't increase at that rate as well. Yeah, which is ridiculous. So that's that's why people are buying into Bitcoin. If inflation is going to happen at 15%, if you can increase your salary 15% every year, no problem. You don't need to buy Bitcoin, right? But I mean, you're you're getting paid in a, in a currency that is devaluing, debasing. And so if you want to protect your purchasing power, if you want to increase your purchasing power, you got to put it into an asset that hurts when you drop it on your foot, right? Um, those are like hard, heavy assets. For thousands of years, that's been gold. But, um, or like real estate, right? Real estate. Yeah. Exactly. Property, real estate property's always been like the richest people on the planet like had the most property. And then like only recently in human history has technology changed that. And I mean, real estate is a great example. There's a finite amount of real estate on this earth. Mm-hmm. And it, that's, it's going to keep increasing over time just because right. we're growing at an exponential rate. So, it, I mean, its value increases the more demand for, for it that there is because you can't create more land on earth. It's yeah, a, but you it's can a like build taller, right? And like dig under and like manipulate it as well. And like you can like... In order to do that, you need to, you need to own the ground space though, right? I mean, I guess, yeah, in order to do that in the first place for sure. Um, but you can like just own one condo on the like that's true I guess building. you know what I mean so what you're telling me is it's not as good as Bitcoin because <laughs> <laughs> it's not as you're right it's not as thermodynamically superior you know? exactly I mean and then it's Mars fine. is gonna happen right but then that's my question right when Mars happens for Bitcoin right there's already a bunch of altcoins why is that magic coin better than another one that's like you know okay, we've maxed out the value for Bitcoin. So now that's the store there. Now we're just going to start maxing out another one. Mankind just agrees. This is the new one. Yeah, it just, I mean, that uh, it, these, these, these altcoins are like just any startup. 99% of them will fail. There's a lot of them copying each other. Not like the same though. things. Shout out Litecoin. <laughs> Shout out Litecoin. <laughs> Matt has actually personally used Matt. Litecoin in uh, transactions in Colorado. So it was in uh, it was in Tahoe. Uh, it was in Tahoe. <laughs> yeah, they were telling me that they had sixty dispensaries across California using uh, Litecoin wallets for transactions, and so I had to literally purchase Litecoin, transacted immediately, and then how much money? The goods. How much money in U- in U.S. dollars did you purchase at that dispensary that day? Eighty dollars. How much money did you spend? when it was at 140 or 130 ish. So the $80 I gave 
yeah 160 or more dollars off of you yes <laughs> off of that transaction yes. but right. that interaction led to me going home and purchasing litecoin that night so like it ah. was pretty beneficial for me nice right yeah so this is what it's gonna take like people are gonna have to interact with the network well that's when i started believing i said the first time i interact with bitcoin i'll buy it and i never did and then i did with litecoin all of a sudden i was like oh okay done i'm buying litecoin litecoin is actually a a competitor for bitcoin it's basically open source it has a finite supply it's what it does though is it it picks another trade-off and instead of being as decentralized it's more efficient and that's why so it's a lot of people like Litecoin. Pick it up for like transactions and stuff, right? Right. Well, yeah. So it's like gold versus cash, like silver. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, gold, you're not going to make everyday transaction because it's a pain in the ass. But right. And like and can, I don't know. Some people believe like Bitcoin will never be used as a currency or for everyday transactions, which I'm fine with. For me, it's a perfect store of value. Do we use gold for everyday transactions? No. We use silver and copper and nickel and paper right i feel like there might be other cryptocurrencies that take on that role as a currency that its main focus is efficiency you know being able to do a billion transactions in a day or something like that bitcoin will never be that and it's not supposed to be so do you think that is when we could see the emergence of those stable coins like tether or uh, I think China has one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the UN. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they created this a stable coin, too, which is also another example of governments taking on this technology and trying to actually lead the space as opposed to ban it. I think India banned Bitcoin. They, they tried to, but it didn't. Earlier this year. Yeah. And about a month later, they unbanned it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everyone was just surging the hell out of bitcoin yeah what is this that my country doesn't want me to own yeah (laughs) everybody immediately wanted bitcoin (laughs) same thing happened in turkey too there was like 12 i think it was or maybe 120 million searches in a day um like practically like i think 50 percent of the country was looking up what bitcoin was uh right after turkey banned it you know quote unquote said that they banned it that's uh, also another signal for market top. Yeah. <laughs> How many people are doing Google searches for Bitcoin every day? The only other thing I feel like we should mention is Satoshi Nakamoto, who's the, the genius designer behind Bitcoin. And there's not really that much to say about him because there's nobody really knows who he is. He's anonymous. I just wanted to comment that I thought that that was a crazy good characteristic of Bitcoin that there was no like supreme leader like Ethereum has because that really shifts the focus to the technology and the network as opposed to someone trying to get rich quick. It really makes it more decentralized, right? When there's not a leader or someone in charge of making the calls. So I like that a lot, but he really hasn't made a a comment or helped to develop the network since like 2011 or something. So he's truly stepped aside and let this blossom into what it has on his own. The only thing we do know about him, I think, is that he's at the time of creation, he he said he was 40, I mean, we don't know anything, but like he said he was 42 years old. Um, and I know he worked closely with 
some people in the US, at least like back and forth through emails. The first transaction ever on the Bitcoin network was between Satoshi and this guy named Hal Finney, who was like um, an early developer for Bitcoin. So, Hal Finney's passed away since. Yeah, he has passed away. So, if he knew who Satoshi is now, that information will never get out. (laughs) Wild. Yeah. That is wild. Thank you guys for talking to us. I mean, this was super informative for me. I learned a a ton and really enjoyed hearing from y'all. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having us on. I love talking about this stuff, so. Yeah, it was was great to hear you so passionate and like, educated about this topic. Like, you you had such a depth of knowledge and it was was really, I'm really thankful that you shared it with us. You're welcome. I mean, I, I could hope to keep contributing. And I mean, as we all, we're all pretty, have a stake a little bit, at least in in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So we're going to all constantly be learning more. And when I go through this course, I know I'm going to be showering you guys with insights. So <laughs> And memes, hopefully. And memes. Awesome. Uh, but thanks for having us on. I love, I love doing this kind of thing. So yeah, I look forward to doing it again in the future, maybe. Thank you, guys. Oh, yeah. For sure.